Let us pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, keep your household, the church, continually in your true religion, that we who trust in the hope of your heavenly grace may always be defended by your mighty power. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen. Be seated. Our Old Testament reading is from Ezra. Then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tetanai, the governor of the province, province beyond the river, Starboznai and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of, of God, the God of Israel. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading comes from 1 Corinthians. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak, I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And immediately Jesus left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go out to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Lord Jesus, we do uh, lift your name on high. We thank you, Lord, um, that your name is above all names. We pray, Lord, that um, through your spirit that you would be growing us in the knowledge and the love for you. Teach us through your word this morning, we ask, and we pray this again in your holy name, Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. I hope uh, many of you are familiar uh, with the movie um, Yesterday. Uh, it's a movie that came out a few years ago that I really um, enjoyed and um, appreciate. Uh, it's a kind of a strange premise where the movie tells the story of a guy named Jack um, who's a musician, kind of a struggling musician, and then through sort of a weird uh, world-changing event that's never actually explained, which I kind of appreciate about the movie, um, he ends up being the only person in the world who remembers the Beatles and knows the music of the Beatles. Um, and so, again, as a musician, he begins to play their songs, he begins to record their songs, and suddenly he goes from being a struggling musician to being incredibly successful, right? People are like, who is this genius that wrote all these incredible songs? And so he experiences both the delight and you know, joy of becoming famous and playing uh, big concerts for people, and the tension and the genuine misery he feels in knowing that truly he is an imposter, right? He is, he's playing other people's music and he's enjoying um, success because of what they have done. And so that tension gets worse and worse for him as his success grows, he becomes more and more unhappy. And one of my favorite moments in the movie, he's doing a concert and he ends with the song Help, a song probably many of you are familiar with, by the Beatles. And it becomes, as he's performing the song, that's not just a performance, but it's truly a cry for help. He ends the song just screaming, help, because he's totally isolated, right? He's created this problem for himself where he's an imposter and you can tell he feels the pain of it. And he's basically feeling, who's going to help me, right? Who can possibly get me out of this miserable situation that I've ended up in? Now, if you're familiar with um, the Compline service in our prayer book, it's a, a beautiful service. It's a short service that's often said at the end of the day. Um, and it begins with a quote from Psalm 121. It says, our help is in the name of the Lord. And then there's a response, the maker of heaven and earth. As we think about times where perhaps we feel like Jack in that uh, movie, right? Who's going to help me? I'm, I'm desperate. I, I feel stuck. I feel isolated. Who's going to help me? We know that our help is in the name of the Lord. 
that the maker of heaven and earth is actually our help. I mean, amazingly, the maker of heaven and earth, almighty God, one of the names he gives to himself in the scriptures is helper, right? Which is amazing, right? He doesn't have to help us, but he does help us. And he wants us to cry out to him for help. In an interview um, I heard years ago uh, with Fred Rogers, the host of Mr. Rogers' um, Neighborhood, uh, the interviewer asked him, uh, what do you recommend to parents when they're helping their children process some tragedy? And specifically some you know, world tragedy, national tragedy, where maybe they're watching the news or they see a picture or they hear about this horrible thing that's happened, maybe a, a terrorist attack or a, a, a hurricane or you know, where, where people have suffered and died. How do you help children deal with that? And one of the pieces of advice that uh, Mr. Rogers shared, he says, I would encourage parents to say to their children, look for the helpers. When you're looking at a picture of a tragedy, when you're hearing about a tragedy, ask the question, where are the helpers? He says, they're always helpers. You can always find helpers. And so I want to look at our passage today from Ezra. We're doing a series on Ezra and Nehemiah's two books. Um, and basically ask the question, where are the helpers? Right? Lord, help us to see the helpers. Because as we see the helpers, and those are both who are helping and what is helping, we see the Lord, the helper. Right? He helps through a variety of means, through different ways the Lord helps us. And we see some of those different ways in this passage. So who are the helpers we see? And how is God bringing his help through various means? And one of those means we see is, once again, and we've seen this a few times before um, in the book of Ezra, it's through the king. This time it's Darius or Darius the king. Um, uh, and uh, he has, again, affirmed um, that they can um, finish the work on the temple. So it says, according to the words set by Darius the king. Um, and then you have um, in the second part of verse 14, they finished their building, right? So they're building the temple. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. So you have right here the different kings, right, who gave their approval for this to happen. Uh, Joel mentioned um, last week uh, that sometimes it's hard to know. Some of these kings go by multiple names or the same name will be used for a few different kings. So it can get a little confusing. But it seems like what is happening here is this is celebrating, again, um, how God worked through Cyrus, how God worked through Darius, and also how God worked or is going to work through Artaxerxes, right? He hasn't shown up yet um, in Ezra, but it's coming. And so there's even some foreshadowing here. There's going to be more kings, right? There's going to be another king that God works through. But the message is very clear in that passage, right? Whose decree ultimately is it, is it right? The, the most credit doesn't go to Cyrus or Darius or Artaxerxes. It goes to God. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel. This is God's work, right? He's bringing his help through these kings, but he's the one who's doing it. And note at the very end of the passage in verse um, 22, the second part of verse 22, it says, the Lord had made them joyful and had turned, right? God turned, right? The heart of the king of Assyria to them. This is God's work, right? He's the one who did this so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Now, what's interesting about that verse is it refers to Darius as the king of Assyria. And we can say, wait a second, that's a mistake. He's the king of Persia, all right? There was Assyria. Assyria was a world empire, right? Sort of the world power in that region at that time. But then Assyria was conquered and defeated by Babylon. And then Babylon became the world power. Then Babylon uh, was defeated uh, by Persia, and Persia became the world power. So we, we can kind of read this and say, well, he's a little off in his timing. 
Now clearly there's a way because of that, you know, succession in that order, there's a way in which Darius kind of is the king of Assyria. But also what may be happening here is it's recalling, right? Darius, you know, um, you know, defeated Babylon, which defeated Assyria. And Assyria, you see throughout the scriptures, alongside Babylon, as it coming up again and again as a major enemy of Israel, right? So there are lots of passages that talk about the damage that was done by Assyria, the threat that Assyria was. And so by calling Darius the king of Assyria, there's a way in which it's reminding us you know, those who were once enemies, those who actually did harm to Israel and actually limited Israel's sort of ability to fulfill their mission, now they have become, you know, those who help, right? That the king of Assyria is actually helping Israel and serving Israel. So it's a testimony to God, how God can turn the hearts of kings. God can turn situations around and redeem them. Now, of course, it also reminds us many worldly leaders oppose the work of God. Even as we celebrate, right, Cyrus, you know, was used by God and Darius was used by God. We can remember, well, there are lots of leaders, right, who resist the work of God and actually who do injustice and cause great harm and great damage. And so to affirm that God works through worldly leaders is not to say every worldly leader is doing God's will, right? We know that, right? You can study history. You can study the word of God. We know it in our own lifetime, right, that leaders can do great harm and damage, Right, but the affirmation, again, here, and it's repeated throughout the book of Ezra, right? And so some of you may be saying, this sounds familiar, right? This sounds like a theme I've already heard um, so far, right? When we hear themes repeated in the scriptures, that's a great opportunity for us to say, this must be important, right? God is wanting me to remember um, this theme. And again, I think the important thing here to note is no leader is going to resist God to the point that God can't fulfill his mission, right? Leaders may resist the work of God, but God's will will be done. He will fulfill his ways. He will make a way. He will redeem every situation. Again, evil and bad things happen, but God is working his, his kingdom um, to come. He's working out his mission. And we have that affirmation of that. And so we can see the way God works through different leaders, right, in different areas. But again, because not every leader, of course, honors God, because, right, there's justice that's done and injustice that is done, we need discernment. We need to be able to discern, right? Is this in line with God's will? Is this in line with God's mission? And how do we respond as the people of God to the leaders that are over us? And that then ties into the second way we see help being given to the people of God here, right? Their help through Darius the king. But what does it say um, right afterwards in verse 14? And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Edo. And so, all right, we see the king helped, but also the prophets helped. God helped his people specifically through, through these two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, but God helps his people through the prophetic word. And we can read this and we say, you know, that is speaking to God helps us through his word, through his written word. And that's where we receive discernment. Right, as we're saying, what's good and what's bad, right? What's right and wrong? Should I trust this leader? And what's justice and what's injustice? We have the word of God to give us discernment and to seek that out, specifically, again, in regard to how do we interact with worldly leaders. And so we see, again, both an affirmation, right? God works through political leaders, through worldly leaders, and God calls his people to obey him first. And so in the New Testament, we see this in Romans 13, uh, chapter one, or verse one of Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. 
to hear that theme. Once again, right? God works through worldly authorities, right? He puts them in place and can fulfill his plans through them. But then you also have the New Testament in the book of Acts. As the church is growing, Peter and John are brought before authorities, right? Those who have authority over them, the Sanhedrin. They're religious authorities, but they also have political power, right? And the Sanhedrin tell Peter and John, right, stop talking about Jesus, right? You're making things difficult for us. We don't want you to talk about Jesus anymore. What did Peter and John say? Well, if you say so, of course, we won't talk about Jesus, right? No. They say, who are we going to obey? Exactly what they say. They say, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. And perhaps at that moment, they're even thinking, right, of moments like this in the Old Testament, right? You know, we're all Jews here. We all know that there are times when the people of God listen to God rather than worldly authorities, right? And do you expect us to do anything different, right? If God's telling us to do something, don't you believe that we'll follow him first and foremost, right? Because that's what Haggai and Zechariah, when it speaks of the prophecy of Haggai and Zechariah, we can go back to chapter 5 of Ezra, Joel referenced this last week, where, you know, the, a, a king had told them to stop, they stopped the work on the temple, right? But then Haggai and Zechariah spoke up and they said, you guys need to start working on the temple, right? We need to go back to building the temple, right? No matter what the king says, God called us to build his house and we need to do it. Now, again, what happened out of that is when the regional leaders saw them rebuilding the temple, they appealed to Darius, and Darius said, they can do it, right? You know, I found the edict from Cyrus that they're allowed to rebuild the temple. So, again, the affirmation came from Darius, but the prophets told them to start rebuilding before Darius had given permission. They said, right, they reminded the people, your first obedience is to God. You obey him, and if he tells you to build, you build. Even if the king tells you to stop building, you obey the Lord. So again, we see that throughout. So we're called to discern, right? Where do I say, yes, you know, um, obeying God means actually disobeying worldly authorities. And of course, we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering, who are imprisoned, who are persecuted because they are making this decision, because they are saying, first and foremost, my allegiance is to the Lord, right? If I've, you know, studied and, you know, heard some, you know, testimonies of the persecuted church, Right, the impression I get is right where the leaders can obey worldly authorities, they do. Where they can, you know, be good law-abiding citizens, they do that. But in those places, right, where the word of the authority comes against the word of God, they say we must obey the word of God. One example I was reading about this week: Pastor Anushavan Avidian, an Iranian pastor. So appropriate as we think about this Persian king to think of Christians in Iran. Right, who had a church. The church gathered together regularly. The Iranian government came in. Um, told them to stop meeting, closed down that church, right? And so he continued to have a Bible study and continued to gather for worship in his home. Right? He knew, right, to obey the Lord. I can't stop worshiping with my brothers and sisters in Christ. We can't stop studying God's word. So he was arrested, put in prison for 10 years. Has all these things he has to do once he gets out of prison. But he had to obey the Lord, right? And so we can pray for our brothers and sisters who are put in this place of having to choose. Who obedience to the Lord means disobeying worldly authorities, but even as we pray for them, I think we can also ask the Lord, how do we apply these truths? How do we apply the places where um, perhaps, again, living out our faith doesn't mean coming against worldly authorities in the sense of breaking the law, but comes against cultural authorities, comes against maybe the voices we hear around us that say, this is the right way to do things, and this is the way you do things, and who we bump up against, right, when we act counterculturally because of our obedience to the Lord. So um, here's a, a few verses from Haggai that, again, were spoken to this specific moment. 
uh, the Lord says through Haggai, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Speaking about the temple. And so speaking to that specific moment, you're dwelling in your houses and yet God's house lies in ruins. But this also speaks to us. It says, now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Well, now, without getting too much into um, analyzing uh, the book of Haggai, I believe what's happening there is he's saying, look, you've gotten your priorities out of order. You're more concerned about your own home than God's home. And what's coming out of that, actually, is you're experiencing a lack of fulfillment in your life. Because your priorities are out of order, you're actually finding that even though you eat, you're still unsatisfied. Even though you drink, you still don't feel filled up. It's like you have a pocket full of holes and you put money in them and it just falls out. And so we can hear that and we can say, okay, we don't have that specific issue, right? There's not a temple that we're being called um, to, to build right now. But we can apply that consider your ways and think, okay, Lord, what ways perhaps do I put my needs do I put my desires before yours? Now, again, they often work together, right? And so it's not bad to say, hey, what am I desiring, Lord? What are the good things I, I long for? But to ask, are there ways in which I'm putting myself first? Are there ways in which my priorities have gotten out of whack? And actually, that's leading to a sense of restlessness and to a sense of a lack of fulfillment. Because I'm so, you know, focused on fulfilling myself, I'm actually experiencing a lack of the very thing I want. Because actually where true fulfillment comes, where true satisfaction comes, is serving the Lord, right? And letting all that I do flow out of my service to him. And again, obeying that and living in that, maybe it mean at times that, again, the, the, the authorities of our culture say, that's crazy. Right? No one does that. Right? You don't live that way, right? That doesn't make any sense. Your priorities are out of whack. And we actually say, no, actually, I'm trying to live with right-ordered priorities. It just looks really different. It looks very strange. And so right, we have um, that call to remember God's word and to honor God's word. God helps us through his word. He helps us through the prophetic word that we receive through the scriptures. We also see that in this passage that they are helped, the people are helped through their joyful sacrifice. As we look at how God helps them, he helps them again through the prophets, through the king, through their joyful sacrifice. As they rebuild the temple, you have this description of this great celebration. The people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. Notice the emphasis on joy there. And then you jump down to verse 22, and once again, they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So seven days, the seven days after celebrating Passover, they continued the Feast of um, Unleavened Bread. And it says they celebrated it with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful. Right? It's like double emphasis, right? They celebrated with joy because the Lord had made them joyful. They were remembering and celebrating God's faithfulness um, to them. And so if you um, remember a few weeks ago, we looked at the passage that speaks about when they first put the foundation down, right? When they were first beginning the rebuilding of the temple. And we, and we saw there how there were people both who were overjoyed when they began the rebuilding of the temple, but there were people full of sorrow because they looked at the rebuilding of the temple, they remembered the old temple, and they were probably thinking, this doesn't look like it's going to be as nice as the old temple. And so they started crying. There was sorrow. And so you have that moment where there's both sorrow and joy, but now actually in this moment, we just see joy. We just see the celebration, right? God has rebuilt his temple through us, and they're celebrating. And that celebration and that joy is accompanied by sacrifice. 
And so, right, they offered at the dedication of the house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, 12 male goats. Now, I don't know what the ratio was of people to um, animals. I don't know the work that goes into animal sacrifices. But when I read those numbers, I'm thinking, that had to take a lot of time, right? And a lot of mess, right? A lot of work um, to, to do this and a lot of money, right? To, to offer all these animals. So there was a sacrifice that was happening there. And then we read about them taking seven days for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Seven days is a long time, right? And what responsibilities, what work did they set aside in order to have that celebration? Now, we don't sacrifice animals. Um, just so you know, if you're guests here, that's not part of our, our worship, right? Praise God, because Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us, right? There's the one um, and only necessary sacrifice on our behalf, Jesus' death on our behalf. And yet we still speak of this time of worship as a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. There's an element of sacrifice, not to earn God's favor, right? God has poured out his grace on us, right, through the death and resurrection of Jesus. But this is a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving in response to what he has done, in response to his sacrifice, right? And there is joy in making sacrifices for the Lord. Now, again, what do sacrifices look like for us? Yes, giving financially, right, so that we can gather together in this space and that we have the resources we need as we gather it involves giving of our gifts and our talents and our abilities, right, which we experience every Sunday when we gather as people use their different abilities and availability, right? It means giving of our time. But this is a time of sacrifice. And I hope all of you experience, I'm sure you have, that in sacrifice, in giving up, we know joy. Right? There's a reason it's become a cliche, right? When someone comes back from a mission trip or when they have, do some sort of service project, right? That they say, I, I received more than I gave, right? I, I gave a lot, but I'm actually the one who benefited the most, right? It's because it's true, right? It's a dynamic that God has created as we give up, as we give away, as we sacrifice, we're actually built up and there's joy, right? Every pastor's favorite verse from 2 Corinthians, God loves a cheerful giver, right? Have you ever heard a pastor give a sermon on that one, right? It's a great verse. We love it so much, right? And there's a reason God loves a cheerful giver. I think it's not just about attitude, although it is, right? God loves it when we have a good attitude about our giving, but I think God loves it when we experience, oh, when I give, I actually experience joy. There's actually a cheerfulness that comes from giving, Right? Because that's how I was created, right? To, to sacrifice and to give up um, for others and to offer myself to the Lord is actually a source of joy. And so they experienced that. And so again, as we think, Lord, how do you help? How do you help your people? Well, one of the ways you help your people is you call them to serve. You call them to give up, right? It's why so often we'll hear testimonies of people at the end of their life where they say, I'm so glad I, I gave you know, things away in my life. I wish I had given more. You know, again, the Lord um, blesses us as we give freely. So there's a, a, a help that comes from that. And then finally, I just want to note that the Lord helps them through their communal remembrance. As they remember together as a community, right? And as they set aside time to remember, God helps them. And so they celebrate the Passover together. And we have the directions that they follow to celebrate the Passover Remember, right, God's faithfulness to his people when they were enslaved in Egypt, when he was bringing them out of Egypt and bringing them into the promised land that he right, um, commanded them, right? Do this, right? Slaughter a lamb, take the blood and put it over the doorpost of your house so that the angel of death passes over you and the Egyptians are judged for their disobedience, right? The Egyptians will see, right, who the one true God is. 
And they were told, even as they were given directions for the Passover, they were told, teach this to your children so they can teach it to your children. Remember this. This is a really important moment to remember. And that's what they're doing here. They're remembering God's faithfulness uh, through the Passover. So this is a moment, right? God helps them by helping them remember because we need to remember. Now, we can make a lot of connections between Passover and our celebration of communion, the, the Lord's Supper, right? Jesus instituted right, the Lord's Supper and told us to do this in remembrance of him at a Passover gathering with his disciples. And so we see the connections, as I just said, right? Christ is our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed for us. His blood sets us free from slavery to sin. As we make those connections, we can celebrate that in celebrating communion, this is a time of remembering. It's a communal time that we together say, this is really important. Don't forget, remember. Now, in our Anglican tradition, right, we would um, affirm or celebrate right, that um, receiving communion is more than just a remembrance. Right? The uh, reformers, as they were um, thinking through sort of what do we believe about communion, affirm that a sacrament is, is we believe something God works through and strengthens us. It's a means of grace. But as I often say, if we say it's more than remembrance, we aren't saying it's not a remembrance. We're not saying remembering's not important. It is really important. And again, as we read through the scriptures again and again, we see remember, we remember, remember. I'm in the first service, at, at one point in my sermon, I forgot something and people thought I was giving like a living example of the importance of, of remembrance, but I was just being forgetful. Um, so, because we are forgetful, right? We just are. Again, you know, there, there are times where I will find myself praying, you know, Lord, where are you? You know, Lord, why have you abandoned me? You know, Lord, have you forgotten me? And then I remember, wow, you know, I just experienced an incredible answer to prayer just a few days ago. I mean, I'm just like so forgetful. We need the help of one another. We need the help of, of rituals. We need the help of gathering together of the sacraments to remember, right? Of God's word to remember. God wants us to remember. He helps us by helping us remember. So one thing uh, to, to share with you all, an anniversary actually that affects you if you're part of this church, but you may not be aware of, so I'm going to share with you is um, this past Thursday, uh, was February 1st, um, and so it was 20 years ago, it was February 1st, um, 2004, that we had the first ever Church of the Cross worship service. Um, now, we weren't Church of the Cross yet because um, we hadn't decided on a name yet, so we were just a group of folks hoping to see an Anglican church uh, uh, planted um, here in the Twin Cities. And so we gathered together, um, it was in um, our living room, we didn't have any other space, and we had 22 um, people gathered together for that first worship service. We actually had 23, if you count my son Drew, because Molly was pregnant with Drew, and church planners, we count anyone we can count. So, uh, so we counted uh, Drew um, at uh, that service. And again, so that was 20 years ago. And that anniversary, and I don't want to be over sentimental, I talked about a few weeks ago how we can get stuck in nostalgia, we don't want to get stuck in nostalgia. But I can look back at that anniversary, and we can all look back, and we can say, wow, man, God has answered so many prayers since that moment. God has provided for this church in so many ways. But I also can look back and say, man, those 22 people, that was such an answer to prayer, right? I mean, we were amazed. We were like, oh my goodness, right? there are 22 people. Again, you know, some of them are children. They didn't have a choice, but still, right? They're responding to God's leading, right, to be part of this new church. And that was an amazing testimony to God's faithfulness. And so my encouragement to you, right, if you're in a place right now where you are crying out to the Lord, help, but that's good that you're crying out to the Lord, right? The Lord wants us to cry out to him. If you're not crying out to the Lord for help, I would say cry out to him, right? He wants you to seek him and cry out to him. But as you're crying out for help, to ask the Lord, where are the helpers? Right? Where are the helpers that you have sent? 
right? You know, his word, right? His people, right? Maybe that's political leaders. Maybe that's, uh, you know, regional leaders. Maybe that's just the circumstances you're in, right? Where are the places of sacrifice that he's actually helping you in? What are the things you can remember? Let's pray for that. Lord, we thank you that you are our help in all times, in times of trouble, in times of blessing, Lord, you are a help to us. And Lord, we pray that as we seek your help, our eyes would be open to the ways you're already helping us. Lord, may we see sort of where your fingerprints are, again, in our circumstances and the people around us. And Lord, help us to remember. Lord, I just pray even right now that uh, for folks here, and maybe folks that are especially struggling, especially in a place where they feel isolated and alone, that you would remind them, Lord. Remind them of your faithfulness. Remind them who you are. Give them faith to keep moving forward, Lord, as you remind them of all that you have done in the past. We thank you, Lord, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We give you thanks and praise in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.